This is the Education Gadfly Show. Wow. Powerful. That's a great Bam. question. We'll just, uh, <laughs> yeah. just let that, I'll let that sit there. Thank you, David. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Elizabeth Mann-Levesque, a fellow in the Brown Center on Education Policy at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, and also joining us, my co-host, David Griffith. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks. All right. Hey, uh, so excited to have you on, Elizabeth. We're going to be talking about civics education. Great. And, and really whether civics education can save American democracy. Is that too much to expect? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not too much. I will also say we all are thinking of our friends down in uh, North Carolina and uh, other states nearby, uh, sending our thoughts and prayers for what is coming, slowly coming. Oh my goodness, this thing is this monster creeping towards our shores. Hope uh, some of these forecasts somehow turn out to be wrong. Okay, but we are here to talk education, so let's do it. Let's do our education reform update. So, Elizabeth, you and your colleagues at the Brown Center have been writing about civics education. Uh, Those of us at Fordham, especially the original Education Gadfly, our own Checker Finn, have been critiquing some of those uh, some of those essays. Can please, you imagine, David? Please don't include me in that group. Yeah, uh, yeah okay. we're going to get into it here. We're going to get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell us. So let let's start. There's uh, look. There's a lot of interest in civics education. Mm-hmm. We all know we are at a difficult point in American politics. Incredible polarization. Mm-hmm. You've got the rise of populism. You've got the challenge of social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, folks who uh, did not vote for Donald Trump. You know, feel like uh, this something went very wrong in our democratic mm-hmm. system to allow someone uh, with his uh, lack of experience, uh, among other things, uh, to get elected. Of course, people who support him uh, feel very differently that mm-hmm. uh, the system finally worked uh, to get somebody who is not a typical politician. So there's a lot of angst about uh, this question around is our democracy broken? And many people say, well, part of the problem is our education system. Mm-hmm. Clearly, uh, you know, when you look at how Americans are behaving, uh, it, they must not have gotten what they needed in schools. What, what's your take on all of this? Um, so it's a big question, yeah. obviously. Um, and, you know, you referenced the report that we wrote earlier this spring. And I think kind of one perspective that we've taken on this question of what's the role of civics education mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. generally is that um, schools have a really important role to play in preparing students to be effective citizens, to understand their system of democracy, to participate in that system of democracy. And I think that's a really, that's a foundational piece to kind of addressing a lot of the problems that you mentioned. So, you know, polarization, political polarization on the one hand, but even more on a basic level, just having civil discourse, even Mm -hmm. with people among people you agree with, not to mention those you don't agree with. Yeah. And the polarization, you know, these surveys now that find that when when you ask Americans, how would you feel if your son or daughter married somebody of the different political party that a huge percentage say that they'd have a hard time with this, that they would, you know, that it has become this sort of, you know, we talk about this tribal identity. Mike, I, I don't know if you saw it. I read an article on 538. It was arguing that Americans are now changing their identities uh, to essentially reflect political political identity, yeah. like religion and right. sexual right. orientation. Right. I mean, right. it was unbelievable. Right, right. And and some people saying, look, this is, this is a human, uh, that, you know, this is human nature that we long for identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as more people have become maybe more secular, so it's not a religious identity or that, you know, they've lost other identities that we've had in the past. Politics has now become... Yeah. 
one of those identities and it makes it really hard to have that kind of civil discord because it's no longer, you know, it used to be that maybe politics was between the 40 yard line and people were center left or center right, but there was general agreement on the big issues and it wasn't, uh, you know, again, so personal yeah. about, you know, your position on affirmative action or your position on this or that. Now it feels like, like war. Well, and that I, so that's really interesting to me. So I'm a political scientist by training. So when I think about partisanship and, you know, polarization, um, you know, since the 50s or 60s uh, in political science, at least we've thought of partisanship as this deeply felt um, social identity that begins, yeah. you know, when you're very young and continues and doesn't change very much, you know, throughout your life. And mm -hmm. so on the one hand, you know, the idea that people have strongly held political beliefs that they identify with isn't anything new. What seems more new is, like you said, this, um, you know, kind of inability to, you know, separate out political discussions from kind of personal animus, you know, yeah. so it's how we talk about our disagreements, I think, and the extent of those disagreements, it seems really magnified. All right. So let's say, and the first challenge we're talking about, you know, what, what civics education might do is to define the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And I think even there, it's not going to be easy to get agreement. What is the problem? I mean, some people are going to say, well, the problem is that, you know, we have a system where Donald Trump could get elected or other people would say, well, we have a problem where Hillary Clinton could get it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always this worry that that people who want change to civics education want it so that their side will do better. Mm -hmm. uh, because if somebody, you know, we think, well, if they only understood history and they only understood uh, civics, clearly they would agree with my uh, take on what we yeah. should do. So that's that's one challenge. But also, again, is, is it the partisanship? Is it the civil discourse? Uh, is it that, you know, we, we worry that young people today may be uh, less um, committed to just keeping a democratic system? I mean, we have the existential threat to the Constitution. I mean, that, you know, uh, and with all of those, isn't it the case that you know, expecting our schools to fix this. It just, it just seems like it's unfair that there's no way our schools are up to this challenge, uh, this challenge that's being driven by so much else in our society. It feels a little naive to think that our schools could do much. Is uh, that a question, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, our, our schools cannot solve all of our problems. And of course, that's unfair to ask teachers and principals to shoulder that load. But mm -hmm. um, that said, I mean, I think that they have an important role to play. And, you know, you ask kind of how do we measure the problem? One way to measure it, you know, admittedly, maybe a narrow way is looking at NAEP scores, right? So we yeah. see, you know, large and persistent achievement gaps by race, ethnicity, income on, you know, the civics uh, NAEP exam. And so even to me, what that says is even at a fundamental level of educating students about basic knowledge about mm -hmm. separation of powers and checks and balances and how you register to vote, even, you know, those kinds of basic things, um, you know, I would argue schools have a really important role to play and are not necessarily doing, mm -hmm. you know, what they yeah. should be. Not Hey, I like that, Elizabeth. We, we agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, again, some of our critique <laughs> yeah. of the report you guys put out was that it had a big focus on action civics and, you know, and, and our worry was that it was overlooking the fundamentals about knowledge, right? And, and not just, we have a bicameral legislature, you know, but, but history and geography. I mean, the kinds of things that you would want an educated citizen to bring to these uh, debates is, is just an understanding of our history and the founding documents and the, all of that stuff. And that in particular is where we still are so, so weak. Yeah, and I and we absolutely agree. I think yeah. we have a lot of common ground there that without that um, baseline knowledge, and like you said, not mm -hmm. in a narrow sense, but kind of understanding of, you know, where the U.S. came from, our place in the global world, all of yeah. those kinds of things is essential, right? It's foundational. Um, and I think, you know, 
where where we were kind of coming from in this report, you know, based on kind of what we were reading of, mm-hmm. you know, other folks in the field working on this is that I think that, um, you know, the knowledge component is essential, but the skills and dispositions, you know, mm-hmm. are these other two components mm-hmm. that people talk about. And to me, I think things like that, they're not necessarily, they're all kind of parts of a whole, right? Mm-hmm. So the skills part might be, um, you know, you teach students kind of what, you know, I don't know, about a congressional hearing or something mm-hmm. like that, right? About some aspect of our democracy. And to me, the skills part has kind of a twofold balance. So one is maybe you run a simulation in class or something like that. Mm-hmm. You're probably deepening students' understanding of mm-hmm. the basic concept you're trying to teach them, right? So you might improve retention of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. But you're also helping them take what can be really abstract. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of components of our democracy are not necessarily easy for you know, young well, nor, by understand. the way, are they very engaging? I mean, we're going to bore the heck out of kids if we, if we actually do <laughs> right. a congressional hearing the way they actually go down most of the time, which is, you know, Although so, so boring <laughs> that, the, that the lawmakers don't even show up to them yeah. uh, to listen. All right. Let me jump. Let me jump in here, Mike, <laughs> because right. as a former civics teacher, yes. I have some fairly strong I opinions about all of this. Oh, every week I'm like, David, please give us right. your perspective I'm, as a well, teacher. And you're I'm like, oh, no, no, don't. Former civics teacher. Okay, so very speak for the nation's teachers. I will, I will not speak for anyone. <laughs> I'll speak for myself. So first of all, in terms of defining the problem, yes. right? I would argue that the problem, I mean, there's many, many problems. That's part of the problem. But one of the biggest problems uh, is motivated reasoning um, and media literacy, which I think, at least for me, are linked, right? If you, uh, I think if I had to pick one problem, it is that so many Americans seek out news sources that Mm -hmm. they agree with um, and are capable of um, thinking very selectively about what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Neurocasting, confirmation bias, all this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even at the level of like attention bias, right? So Mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, what what do you see as the biggest problems in America right now? Well, I have some opinions, right? But there are so many problems. Um, you know, you can focus on the ones uh, that that you make your opponents look bad instead of the problems that are staring you in the face that might actually be, you know, have to do with your side, right? Yeah. And how your side is behaving. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if our our schools can necessarily um, solve the problem of confirmation mm-hmm. bias or motivated reasoning, but they ought to try, and they ought to try. Uh, to tackle media literacy. I mean, nobody nobody should leave uh, an American high school civics class without understanding mm-hmm. that you need to read both sides, that you need yeah. to read multiple sources, mm-hmm. right? That that you are not doing your part as a citizen um, if you just listen yeah. to Channel X all day. And, and maybe like assignments where you have to argue both sides. Yes. This, and, and this, I mean, I think that this is a perfect example of there's not really that wide a gulf between the knowledge and skills components, right? Mm-hmm. Skills-based learning might be something like you in class read both sides of an argument or you learn how to read a tweet and interpret you know is this something that's based on evidence how biased is this so look let let me ask you a tough question go for it let's assume that our top students the ones that are coming out of our high schools and going to our elite universities have gotten most of uh, most of not all of what we're talking about they the the knowledge or the skills both they've they've taken and passed ap history and and uh government you know, with fours and fives, they've gotten a chance in those classes to be, to develop these skills. A lot of them are politically engaged in one way or the other. Okay, they are now on our college campuses. Is the argument that that you know, therefore, our young elite college students are doing citizenship right, and that the problem is basically with our less educated people? I mean, and and doesn't that put us? I mean, doesn't that put us a little bit in a corner because it's because we know the political views of most young people at elite 
campuses, which it leans very far left. I mean, I I just feel like we we get into this problem. No, that's not all right. Go. For I mean, it. I mean, what you? I mean, so because you basically get to the point where you say, well, then you know, if you're one of those people that then yeah, they we have succeeded with those young people, and if we can only make sure everybody got that kind of experience, we we would be in a much better place. I mean, I think so. When I think about the goals of civics education, it's not about. Um, you know, preparing students to argue one particular thing or not, or to participate in a particular venue or not. Mm -hmm. It's more about, do students know how to access the system and participate in it and to articulate and form, you know, points of view? And so Mm -hmm. to the extent that- they know know how to form points of view. (laughs) Right, but (laughs) informed, informed points of view, right? But so, you know, so, so thinking about the students you were describing, I mean, to me, the problem is- What's inherently unfair and is going to perpetuate a lot of problems is if we have, you know, this more elite class of students that comes out knowing how to access the system, knowing how to navigate and participate in it. And then students from, for example, lower income backgrounds, not knowing how to do that. I mean, that to me is a big problem. Yeah, I I guess I guess what I'm pushing at a little bit is like, look, I I do think those elite students are getting a lot of what we'd want everybody to get. But we have to wrestle with the fact that for whatever reason, they tend to come out. Uh, with with quite liberal views compared to the Americans as a whole, and and uh, conservatives have to wrestle figure with out that, what, why that is. <laughs> conservatives have to wrestle with uh, that, right? I mean, just just I mean, it's, that's a closed loop, right? I mean, uh, one, one one thing I would say, right, is that I mean, at least my reading of like everything that's been written and, and done on on motivated reasoning and this sort of thing mm-hmm. is like it's not about intelligence. Intelligent people can can exhibit extremely motivated reasoning. In fact, they yes. can they can construct extremely elaborate justifications. Yes. For their point of view. So it's it's not necessarily yes. about like, you know, whether what your SAT score was doesn't make you a better uh, model citizen. Right. I mean, it is it is actually that's I guess that's kind of why I, I mean, I, I disagree with Fordham's position, such as we some insofar as we have one. We on don't this. really take positions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, look, I mean, how can the problem be teaching Americans more facts um, if 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 Americans can be taught the wrong facts? Yeah. Wow. Powerful. That's a good question. We'll just, <laughs> just let that, I'll let that sit there. Thank you, David. And thank you, Elizabeth. Great discussion. Hard stuff. I, I look, I continue to be, I just think we have to be uh, realistic about, you know, the, the impact that our schools can have. This issue probably obviously is much bigger. And, and this is one of those ones. There's some issues in education where we can look to evidence. We can look to research. We can, you know, how to teach reading. How, man, this one is about values and it's hard. And I feel bad for the nation's civics teachers right now, because how the heck do you do this in such a polarized environment? It's actually a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Way more fun than history. Sorry. Sorry. History. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Hope you come back sometime. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's research minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. All right, Amber, calling in today from Richmond as uh, you and your family are preparing for the storm. We are. We have generators. We have lots of water. Uh, the one thing I don't have is food. I think I, I need to get on that in case uh, in case it hits us, but uh, we're prepared. All right, that's good. We'll stay safe. All right, what you got for us this week? Uh, we got a new study out by Rand. Uh, it examines retention policies. Uh, these have been around for a long time. I think they're in about 17 states now. Um, numerous school districts, they say. We don't know how many, but uh, I think everybody knows that these uh, policies require a, uh, a kid to re- 
repeat a grade mm -hmm. if they don't meet some minimum level of, of performance on a test. And they've been around forever, but they're still controversial. Uh, I think in a nutshell, some people say, you know, if you repeat a grade, it gives kids time to catch up for that next grade. And other people say, no, there's all kinds of behavioral problems and dropout rates um, that are negative consequences of retention. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is a lot of these studies aren't too rigorous um, mm -hmm. and they couldn't detect causality. And so Amber, this it's, is it's the, often something like, like third grade reading, right? I mean, it's like at a particular point that the states yeah, have a policy. But, but this one is different. Uh, this is the this is in New York City. So I'll, I'll run through real quickly what their policy is. This is a little different than, than that third grade reading guarantee that a lot of folks are familiar with. Um, so they looked at the causal effects of retention in grades uh, when kids were retained in grades three through eight on student behavior and high school outcomes. They used 12 years of student data from New York City. Um, they determined the effect of retention on a bunch of stuff, suspensions, absenteeism, dropout rates, credit accumulation and graduation, about 93,000 kids in the sample. Uh, and, and to your question, a little bit of, on their policy, they required that students who scored in the lowest category on that on that state test, which is a level one, uh, in either math or ELA, had a, were assigned a mandatory summer school. Unless they demonstrate at least level two through a portfolio approach. We know we don't know what that is. Uh, but anyway, at the end of summer school, those students took a second test in the subjects that they'd scored a level one on in the spring. And if they were still scoring a level one, they were uh, retained again, unless they had this portfolio review of their summer work that said, you're okay, um, or they got an exemption. But these are the kids, again, that that, um, you know, were retained and had this second summer school test. And so um, it's not, you know, it's not a third grade reading guarantee. Um, they use a regression discontinuity design, which is kind of cool. It allowed them to compare the students scoring at the level one, level two cutoff on that end of summer test I just told you about. And so the idea is, is that the kids are supposed to be pretty similar uh, when their test scores just fall above or below that cutoff. Um, so there's a, there's a causality implication here. Um, and they have four key findings. So one is that there's no systemic evidence that retention impacted suspensions. That's being suspended or the number of days suspended for up to three years after those kids were retained. Similarly, no effects were found on school attendance or chronic absenteeism. And when each grade was examined by itself, there were a few isolated temporary effects um, as the kids were transitioning out of into and out of middle school, but they think, think that that's pretty common. Um, number two, retain students average fewer credits accumulated over their time in high school. Uh, and the size of that effect was about twice as large for students who were retained in middle school, that's grades six through eight, than for the kids who were retained in elementary school, grades three through five. Number three, likewise, students retained in elementary schools were more no more likely to drop out than were promoted kids. However, students retained in middle school, so we're starting to see a pattern here, mm -hmm. were more more likely than their promoted counterparts to drop out once they had passed that on-time graduation year when they were supposed to graduate. And then number four, um, and this was interesting, retention did not improve the likelihood of graduating. So specifically on in that on-time graduation year when the promoted kids would have been expected to have reached grade 12, they did see a difference as you would expect, but there was no significant difference in the eventual graduation rates between those retained and promoted kids after those retained kids had the opportunity to also reach 12 grade 12. So in other words, retention wasn't producing a benefit on graduation rates uh, for that extra year of school. So in a nutshell, the analysts say, you know, if you need to retain kids, and I think this is sort of intuitive, it's better to do it in the elementary grades, at least if high school graduation is your goal. And my sense, though, is that the opposite of what we tend to do, that we uh, retain a lot of kids as they get older, or especially, say, in ninth grade, you know, right now you were looking at three to eight, but we kind of 
you know, kid, a lot of kids get kind of trapped around the end of eighth grade or ninth grade before they're allowed to move on, uh, you know, instead of addressing this earlier, it'd be interesting to know in, in New York City whether that was the case too, that there was just where the numbers of retentions higher right, in middle are school. occurring. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I, I agree. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating, honestly, and, and that they were able to do this sort of, you know, causal design and, uh, and whatnot. You know, these designs are becoming more and more common. Um, but, you know, were you surprised at all with that first one, Mike? I mean, about not no evidence impacting suspensions or no, I think that's attendance in- or absenteeism? Yeah, no, it's encouraging. I mean, my it seems like... Like my, you know, the takeaway is clearly to be cautious about retentions by middle school, but you know, all else being equal that, that what for elementary school, it sounds like for the most part, there was no downside. Um, Amber, did the authors, I mean, do they have any theories about like why that difference exists? Like what, what is the explanation for that? Yeah, that, that, they didn't go into that, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to think about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, my, my guess would be that in elementary school, we already have kids of different ages in the same class, uh, at least in some schools because of redshirting, you know, I mean, my own son, we held him back a year as he will tell you, you know, he'll, uh, how old are you? Uh, you know, Leandro? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm eight, but I'm only in second grade because I was held back. (laughs) Tried to coach him that maybe you don't need to say that uh, all the time. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so you've got some mixing and, you know, the kids are not a big, you know, it's not a big deal when they're little or they don't think about it as much or, but, you know, you fail a grade when you're in middle school and you get what that means. I don't know that that just, uh, I I think that could be a bigger blow perhaps. I don't know. I look, but, but the other thing is, you know, to retain a kid in elementary school, what I, you know, one positive, uh, potentially positive part about this is that you're talking about, uh, sending a signal to the parents that something's wrong, you know, and at a time when we've got this great inflation and we've got, you know, so many parents out there report, they think their kids are on track when they're not. I mean, to be able to send that strong signal that, Hey, we've got a problem here. It's such a big problem that your kid has to go to summer school or they need to repeat a grade, you know, that maybe that has, uh, you know, gets their attention. One last thing, let's remember the downside of regression discontinuity designs, <clears throat> which is that well, we are looking... they only apply to those kids around that border, right? Look at, look at you, the look at you, Petrelli. Huh? Look at you, huh? man. It just rolled right off the yeah. tongue. Good for you, Mike. We, I, I, I did not put in all the limitations boom. of the study design. Boom. No, we, we don't know the impact that this is having on the lowest performing kids, the kids who are nowhere near the cutoff, right? And so, uh, you know, it could be much more positive, it could be more negative. We just don't know for those kids. It's These are the kids that are just at the borderline that we can that that we are learning about. That is about. true. I'm so proud that Ooh. you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah, I guess my only my only real thought on this is, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what do we actually expect, right? Like, is the point, I mean, I don't really have a theory one way or the other when it comes to retention as to whether it helps or hurt kids. And my understanding is it kind of, the research points in both directions, at least the last time I checked. Yeah, and that but, is, right. but I mean, I think what you're saying is like, that's not the point in some ways. The point is like to maintain a broader system where we send honest signals to parents and we don't have just hopelessly yeah. degraded standards. Well, I mean, here, here's, let, let's put it a different way, right? Yeah. <laughs> this whole question rests on the assumption that we have grades, right? And, and there yeah. is this push to say we should have more personalization let kids proceed at their own pace. You know, imagine if elementary schools were more fluid in terms of, you know, so that we did not have this direct connection between, you know, you're seven, so you're in second grade. Uh, And we figured out ways with maybe multi-age classrooms or some other ways to break that cultural expectation that kids move up a grade every year. Uh, You know, I don't know. I I just, you know, so that we get around, you know, we have this huge, the problem with the grading with the, you know, with, with, 
second grade equals seven yeah. is of course we'd send kids on to the next grade who aren't ready. And then that makes it challenging for those third grade teachers uh, to try to teach everybody who are at such different levels. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that it may be that kids, especially when they're young, they just, some kids are going to need more time to get where they need to be. Yeah. And if we made that, if we designed a system where that was uh, allowable and, and okay, you know, that those kids would get more of what they needed. I guess I'll just say, I, I hope more people do research on this because I think it's a really big question. Yeah. And I, I just think, I really think we need more information on it. I, I wish people, more people would study it. Yeah. 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 And, and, and by the way, I mean, the big looming question of this portfolio approach was seems like this, you know, this other door by which we say, okay, kids are ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think historically we've sort of poo pooed that and said, you know, it's just a collection of worksheets. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, is it, is it right? Is it, is it do justice to, uh, to have these kids have this additional sort of portfolio approach door by which they can enter it and, mm-hmm. and presumably demonstrate that they've mastered the material? All right. Good stuff. Uh, but wow. Great study, even if it raises more questions questions than it answers. Yes. There you go. All right, Amber. Thanks so much. Stay safe down there. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.